Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum and yali madad to everybody. I'm thrilled to be with you. Thank you so much for having me today. Uh, I have to say that I've made two previous trips to Salt Lake City and to Provo. Both of them were during the winter. So I feel uh, a little bit cheated that I don't get to see the leaves turning with all of you at the beginning of an an academic year. Uh, God willing, uh, one day soon that that will happen. Um, I wanna tell you how much I admire BYU as an institution how much I admire uh, the, uh, the community that is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I grew up with members of the LDS community. Uh, in fact, I had uh, my one of my closest friends and my girlfriend for a time in high school was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In so many ways, what uh, my the depth of my respect for religious commitment as a whole and my interest in religious diversity begins with those friendships. So thank you so much for for welcoming me in your midst, at least virtually, and I look forward to this time with you. So if we could uh, go to to my first slide, Um, uh, I wanna tell you about a Kairos moment in my life, a supreme moment in my life. I was in South Africa in December of 1999, and I saw maybe the greatest figure of the 20th century, this man, Nelson Mandela, speak. And the first thing that he did was he pointed his finger out into the Cape towards Robben Island, where he had spent some 27 years of his life as a prisoner of the apartheid regime. And he said, I would still be there in that prison on that island if it had not been for the Christians and the Muslims the Jews and the Hindus, the Baha'is and the Buddhists and the Quakers, the secular humanists, the members of indigenous traditions. And I imagine some members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as well. If it had not been for them coming together in a movement called the struggle against apartheid. And he went on to discuss just how important diverse faith communities coming together were in bringing down an evil system that dramatically oppressed people of color and that kept the races different. And I love the opening prayer today, a prayer for unity, a prayer for coming together, systems that keep people apart and that keep keep some groups down are evil precisely because God loves unity and desires for us, his children, to be unified. And here was Nelson Mandela saying that the reason that that system came down, apartheid, And the reason a new day dawned in South Africa was because of a movement of people from different religious communities and convictions coming together on their shared value of unity, of liberation, of pluralism. And listening to Mandela that day, I thought to myself, how have I not heard about this? How did I not know the important role that this interfaith movement had played in liberating South Africa? I thought to myself, not knowing that means I lack something in my education. This major 
movement in at the end of the 20th century, propelled by people from different faiths working together. To not know that means in some ways I'm not educated. Mandela would go on to be very uh, um, public and forthright about his friendships with with, uh, leaders of different faiths. I've got images here of him with uh, the Pope and of him with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. There there might well have been times when he consulted with senior leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, There are several Muslims that I know, uh, Ibrahim Rasul, Ibrahim Musa, Farid Esak, uh, um, in South Africa, who were very close with Mandela, who spoke frequently about his respect for the Muslim faith and what he learned from it. The point is that this major moment in human history was brought about by an interfaith movement. And it changed my eyes. There's a great line by the French writer Marcel Proust that the true journey of discovery is not in seeing new landscapes, it's in developing new eyes. I think that that is as good a definition of education as I can think of. Education is the development of new eyes. And that moment with Mandela shaped my eyes about history. I took a different set of eyes into history. And one of the things I started paying attention to was the role that that interfaith work, that people from different religious communities and religious convictions coming together and shared values has played in other historical movements. And one of the most inspiring, of course, is one that took place in the United States some 60, 70 years ago. I want to show you an image from uh, the Great March in Selma. And of course, uh, for those of you who pay attention to American public affairs, uh, Selma was in the news uh, a month or two ago because of the death of an American hero, uh, John Lewis. And you'll see there he is, front and center, a young man in his 20s at the time, uh, uh, John Lewis on that bridge from Selma to Montgomery. Uh, John Lewis was a deeply convicted Christian. There are great stories about him uh, growing up and preaching to the chickens in the backyard of his parents, uh, uh, where his parents were sharecroppers on a small farm in, in rural Georgia. And of course, there's the great Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. I I frequently call him Reverend King because as a friend of mine told me some years back, we know a lot about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We know about his speeches and his essays. Uh, We know about his intellect, his PhD from Boston University. We don't spend a lot of time on Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. King, the Christian, the man who said that many people want to make of me many things, but in the deep recesses of my heart, I am a Christian minister, a Baptist minister, And my commitment to Jesus as the son of the living God is the highest commitment that I have. And of course, there's other figures there in Selma. There's Catholic sisters and Catholic priests right behind King. uh, Over his left shoulder, there's the great rabbi, Abraham Joshua Heschel, who missed the trains going from Warsaw to Auschwitz by six weeks. He could have died in Hitler's hellfires. And instead, there he is in Selma, a great Jewish rabbi, Noting later that although the way that Martin Luther King Jr. and I believe our doctrine is different, in Selma, in that interfaith movement to liberate America from its racist history, it felt like worship. And so because of that moment of education that I had with Mandela in South Africa and Cape Town, 
I took a different set of eyes through, into history, including into civil rights history. I hail from India, and I'm very interested in the movement that liberated India, the Hind Swaraj movement. And so I began to look into the Hind Swaraj movement. And part of what I discovered is there is a profound interfaith dynamic in that movement as well. And here we have some images of the great Mahatma Gandhi, who is, of course, the beating heart of that movement. And we know that John Lewis and Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. learned a great deal from Gandhi. Gandhi, whose central text wasn't the Bible, although he had deep respect for the Bible, his central text was the Hindu text, the Bhagavad Gita, right? His, his inspiration came principally from his own tradition of Hinduism. Gandhi passes on a great deal of inspiration to the Christian leadership of the civil rights movement. He himself takes inspiration from people from a range of faiths. There he is with Jawaharlal Nehru, the man with the hat there, who, although is culturally Hindu, is best described religiously as a secular humanist. And there he is with Bacha Khan, the, the tall gentleman next to him with the beard. Bacha Khan, the great Muslim leader from Afghanistan, a Pashtun, the same tribe that the Taliban come from, is the tribe that Bacha Khan comes from often called the frontier Gandhi, he gets his convictions for interfaith work, for liberation, for pluralism, for nonviolence and peace from Muslim texts. We hear a lot about Gandhi's commitment to ahimsa, nonviolence. Ahimsa is actually a term from a different religion, the religion of Jainism. So here is Gandhi, the great Hindu leader who passes on so much wisdom and inspiration to the Christian leaders of the civil rights movement as they build an interfaith movement. And here is Gandhi taking his inspiration from so many different religions, from Jainism, from the philosophical convictions of ethical, of, of ethical humanism, from, uh, um, from Islam with his friendship with Bacha Khan. One of the things that I would encourage all of you to do is to consider the moments in history that you find the most inspiring and to ask the question, were there people from different faiths helping each other in this moment? Were there people from different religions inspiring each other, working together for a common goal, even though they disagreed in doctrine? Did they come together on shared values? Did they accomplish something great together? Did they take inspiration from each other? I actually think one of the most profound questions that we can ask on our way to being educated people is the question, did I get inspired by somebody who believes things that are very different than what I believe? And to illustrate, I want to highlight this image of Dorothy Day, who's the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. Uh, here she is uh, uh, in her later years, uh, uh, staring up at police officers uh, in a protest and saying, you should join me in the work towards a peaceful, humane future. We can work on this together. Uh, Dorothy Day founded the Catholic Worker Movement. It is a movement uh, that is focused on people living like Jesus lived, not just in service to the poor, but actually with the poor and in solidarity 
with the poor. They live in houses of hospitality across the country. I was so inspired by Dorothy Day that I spent a summer living in Catholic worker houses. And actually after I graduated from college, went and spent several months living in a Catholic worker house in Chicago. For me, Dorothy Day is the signal example of somebody whose doctrine I disagree with, but whose values, whose ethics, who, whose uh, way of life I deeply admire. And I recognize just how much that way of life comes out of her religious conviction. And I realize and have great respect for the audience that I'm speaking to, an audience of people who are committed to mission, who are so committed to their religious convictions that they invite other people into them with generosity and grace. And I actually think that these two things can live side by side. I am not asking you to give up your commitment to mission. I'm saying to you, alongside your commitment to mission, is there a commitment to neighborliness, to appreciation, to recognition of how other people might be inspired by their religious convictions. If they choose not to accept your invitation, offered with generosity and grace always, to join you in your religious conviction, what might your faith have to say about living as neighbors, about building things together, about working uh, in, on the terrain of shared values? And think of what it has accomplished in history. Think of the apartheid, the movement against apartheid in South Africa. Think of the civil rights movement in the United States. Think of Hind Swaraj. These movements might never have happened if it had not been for people from different religions coming together on shared values with a shared dream. What I want to do now is show you some snapshots from the America that we live in. Uh, an America that is highly religiously diverse and highly religiously devout. I've thus far been showing you snapshots of history, but we very much live in a moment in which an interfaith movement on shared values towards American renewal needs leaders, leaders like you. So this, uh, these are members of a, a Sikh Boy Scout troop. Um, it's interesting, right, uh, to think that the Boy Scouts have been uh, uh, a civic institution that people from a whole range of religious communities have, have found fulfilling and nurturing. And I know about the longstanding relationship between the LDS community and, and the Boy Scouts, at least historically. My own religious community, Ismaili Muslims, have greatly benefited from this. What if an LDS Boy Scout group uh, found themselves on a camping trip with a Sikh Boy Scout group? What if members of a Boy Scout group are religiously diverse and committed and those two young men walked into your Boy Scout group and they had a little knife at their side? Would you know that that knife is an article of their faith, a kirpan, which means mercy and bless? What would it mean to be educated about the religious diversity of a Boy Scout or Girl Scout troop. Right? These are snapshots of religious diversity in American life that you will undoubtedly encounter. Here's another image. So this is a, it's an image of American healthcare. And 
uh, I want you to think about the various people who, the various religious traditions that that uh, could well be represented here. I That gentleman there is a member of my religious community. He's an Ismaili Muslim. He goes to the same Jamaat kind of that I do. And those other medical professionals, those doctors, those nurses, those respiratory therapists, uh, those custodians who are sanitizing rooms, they're Jehovah's Witnesses. They're Methodists, they're Baptists, they're Catholics, they're Muslims, they're Jews. Actually, American healthcare is probably the single best example of religious diversity coming together in interfaith cooperation for a shared value, which is healing. And it's interesting, right? Because I imagine those of you in the audience who are considering becoming doctors or nurses or respiratory therapists yourself, it is in part your Latter-day Saint conviction that is inspiring you to become a healer. Well, it's the same for the Hindus and Jews and Baha'is and Buddhists and Jains who are doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists. It is their religious conviction that in part inspires them to become a healer. And so when you are all working together to address uh, a particularly acute case of COVID or an acute case of cancer, you are inspired by diverse religious convictions for a profound common cause, which is healing and life. Let's pay attention to the inspiring interfaith cooperation happening in American healthcare. And that cooperation actually goes around the world. So this is one of my favorite images from, uh, from this past spring and summer, challenging as it has been with uh, an economic recession, um, with of course the COVID crisis, with really deep polarization and a rising ugliness in civic life. Uh, here's this beautiful moment uh, in Jerusalem of a Muslim and a Jew doing their afternoon prayers together, pausing as they make visits to people who are afflicted by ailment or disease in many cases, the coronavirus. And that van, you'll see, they are part of a medical service in Jerusalem that is funded by an American charity, right? This is such a beautiful image. Can you see yourself in, as a future doctor or a nurse or driver of an ambulance who pauses to do your prayers alongside somebody who's Hindu or Catholic or Jain or Muslim or a secular humanist who is pausing for his or her moment of reflection, both of you healers, both of you inspired by your faith conviction, different as it is to come together and be a healer. And for you to be consider yourself an educated person in that scene, what would you have to know about that other person's religion? What would you feel like it was required of you to understand about that Jew or that Muslim that you were in that ambulance with or in that operating room with. American healthcare, the way it operates here in the United States and also around the world, an inspiring example of interfaith cooperation. So let's go on to the next image. So uh, this is uh, a homeless shelter, Catholic Charities. Catholic Charities is, in many communities around the country, the largest non-governmental charity system. They do adoption services, they do foster care, they do 
homeless shelters and soup kitchens, I sometimes uh, think to myself, if all of the Catholic institutions shut down in any particular neighborhood, this is probably not the case in Provo or Salt Lake, but it's the case in a lot of places here in Chicago, for sure. If all of the Catholic schools, all the Catholic universities, all the Catholic hospitals, all the Catholic social service agencies shut down, you would have very little civic and social service life left. That is how much work uh, uh, Catholic uh, health, social service, educational, civic organizations do in American life. Next image. So um, uh, this is a disaster relief service founded by a faith community. Uh, and there is a hurricane that is hit Mexico and it's heading for the Gulf Coast in the United States. And God willing, it, it is, uh, doesn't cause much damage in Mexico or on the Gulf Coast. And whatever damage it causes, the people who will be helping folks after that damage are people of faith. Uh, Southern Baptists run amongst the largest disaster relief services in the United States. If you are involved in disaster relief, either through an LDS effort or through the Red Cross or through a government, I promise you, you will be working with Hindu and Muslim and Catholic and Methodist and Southern Baptist uh, volunteers and organizations in that. Disaster relief in the United States and far beyond is very often an interfaith endeavor. And for you to be educated, to be competent, if you are involved in that, you will have to have an appreciative understanding of the inspiration of other people's faiths and bringing them to that same cause of disaster relief in this case that you're involved in. So this next uh, image, um, uh, this is an image of, of a Hindu working in a soup kitchen. And I grew up uh, with uh, lots of Hindu friends in part because I'm South Asian and, and th those are in some of the communities that I would roll in. And that commitment, the Hindu commitment to, uh, to helping others was something that always inspired me. Uh, Gandhi would call his movement in India Satyagraha, love force or peace force. Uh, the, the term that I grew up saying all the time was the term seva, service. It's a central part of the Hindu commitment. And you will find Hindu volunteers at food banks across the country. You'll find them setting up their own soup kitchens. And again, I want to I want you to ask the question, if you're part of an LDS group that is volunteering at a food bank or volunteering at a soup kitchen, and you find yourself volunteering alongside a Hindu group, what would you know about their religion? What would you feel like you needed to know in order to be educated? Wouldn't it be wonderful to say to them, you know, I, I learned in, uh, in a class at, at Brigham Young University about the deep Hindu commitment to service. And I want to tell you, I admire it. And uh, and it actually has a resonance with my own LDS commitment to service. And I, I'd love to share uh, some of the similarities and, and differences here. You know, what a wonderful conversation to be able to engage in. And it's frankly a conversation that has the mark of being educated, right? To understand the inspiration in a different tradition is part of the mark of being educated. Another image. Um, this is, uh, uh, this is an image of a, a Jew involved in, in uh, food banking for a cause. There's a great line in Judaism, 
tikkun olam, to repair the world. And my, my Jewish friends uh, talk about tikkun olam in, in any of the causes they're involved in. So again, I want you to imagine some of the causes you might feel strongly about and, and where you might encounter Jews alongside you. And wouldn't it be wonderful to lean over to them and to say, hey, you know, I learned in a class at Brigham Young University about tikkun olam, repairing the world. Can you tell me more about that? You know, think about when somebody uh, knows something appreciative about your religion and, and they, they talk about, oh, you know, I, 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 uh, I had friends growing up who were Latter-day Saint and, and I was so struck by uh, um, the, the commitment to family within the Latter-day Saint community. You know, think about how you feel when somebody had, knows something appreciative about your community and tradition even if they don't agree with all the doctrine, right? They say, you know, I know how one of my best friends was inspired by the Book of Mormon. It it helped bring meaning to her life. To be able to do that for somebody else's religion is is part of the mark, I think, of of being educated. Uh, This next image here um, is an image of, uh, I believe we've got an image of an African-American Muslim working at a soup kitchen. And, uh, you know, every night during our evening prayers, I read a Quran verse to, to uh, my kids and we discuss that Quran verse. And over and over again, the Quran says, uh, believe in God and do righteous deeds and God will welcome you into his mercy. I imagine that, that there's many parts of LDS scripture that effectively say the same thing. Right? Mercy is such a central uh, element in Islam, the, the tradition of privacy in Islam. The first teaching that classical Muslim scholars passed on to their students was the one in heaven is merciful. And if you are merciful to those on earth, he will be merciful to you. There's a beautiful line of the Quran. Uh, God sent you as nothing but a special mercy upon all the worlds. Ramatul Alamin is the Arabic. Again, imagine yourself serving next to a Muslim somewhere and being able to say, you know, I, I know something about mercy in Islam and it inspired me and it reminded me of some things in my own tradition. Can you tell me more about that? That initial appreciation is the mark of being an educated person. And so is the ability to ask the question afterwards. Nobody's asking you to be an expert on this. I'm only asking you to have a little bit of appreciative knowledge such that you can show your uh, show your admiration for another tradition and community and ask the kind of question that would elicit a positive and civil conversation. Boy, does this nation need positive and civil conversations between people from different identities. Next, uh, next image. So these are African, uh, 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 African-American pastors who are leading a protest outside of a prison. And for any of you who have been paying attention to how racism works in America, uh, um, you know full well that slavery evolves into Jim Crow segregation, which evolves into mass incarceration. And that is a, uh, a central reason for the long overdue racial reckoning that we had in, uh, uh, in the United States this summer. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we have the largest prison population in the industrialized world, and it principally incarcerates people of color. There are 
schools and neighborhoods in America where there is a metaphorical train running from that high school to a prison. And it is a new form of Jim Crow or slavery, according to lots of deeply insightful uh, writers and intellectuals and scholars. And in many cases, it is the black church, black church leaders who've said, this is inhumane. This is wrong. This is a system that is based on sin. We have to be able to do something other than punish people. One of the great leaders of this is the great Brian Stevenson. And, and, and he bases so much of his work at the Equal Justice Initiative on his Christian convictions. And he says, you know, imagine if, if somebody came into church and said, oh, you did something wrong. We can't accept you here. You can't be a member of this community. We're going to we're going to put you over there behind some bars and some barbed wire. And if you say anything about it, we're going to throw you in this inhumane thing called solitary confinement. Brian Stevenson says Christian faith doesn't work that way. Christian faith has a whole process of welcoming people back into the community, doing something other than punishment, doing something called restoration, rehabilitation right? Reconciliation. That is what so many of our faith communities are built on. The conviction that people who have done something wrong can be rehabilitated. They can confess. They can be brought back into the community. Entire churches are based on that. Shouldn't we have a system that is undergirded by those same Christian values? Those same, I would say, interfaith values? There's certainly a process for that. In Islam, what if we cast out every sinner in our community and put them behind barbed wire? A terrible situation for faith communities. A terrible situation also for our nation. It is an interfaith movement that is leading this, leading that process of rehabilitation with black church leaders out front. Next slide. So back to the Sikh community. This is the Sikh community uh, uh, showing up in defense of the Jewish community that has experienced an awful lot of extremist violence directed to it. And one of my favorite uh, 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 parts of the Sikh tradition is uh, an ethic called Chardi Kala, which is joy in the face of suffering. And everywhere I turn, when another community is suffering, there are members of the Sikh community coming with their ethic of Chardikala, joy in the face of suffering, saying, we are with you. We have solidarity with you. We are going to collectively be a community of joy in the face of this suffering. And, and that's what these Sikh gentlemen are, are doing here, Chardikala. So I want to now turn to something of a different part of this talk. Uh, um, All of these are snapshots of uh, a highly religiously diverse America. In fact, in America that some scholars say is the most religiously diverse nation in human history and probably the most religiously devout nation in the Western hemisphere. And it's not getting any less religiously diverse. And I've got some numbers here to show you. So uh, right now there's about 4 million Muslims living in the United States. That number is set to double over the course of the next couple of decades. And what that means is that if you volunteer at soup kitchens or at homeless shelters, or if you're part of 
uh, um, uh, Boy Scout troops or part of American civic or professional life in any sort of way, you are likely to be there uh, operating alongside a Muslim physician or working alongside a Muslim engineer or uh, designing a house alongside a Muslim architect. The Muslim population is dramatically growing. So is the Hindu population and so is the Buddhist population. Let me give you some kind of uh, um, uh, parallel numbers here. So uh, there's 4 million Muslims in the United States, approximately 4 million. That's about the same number as there are ELCA Lutherans. And it's about twice as many as, as uh, members of the Episcopal Church and almost as many Jews and, Muslim, and Methodists. So there's about 6 million Jews and Methodists, about 4 million Muslims. And Muslims are a much younger population, right? It is much more likely that if you're 19 years old, you know a Muslim than you know an Episcopalian, frankly. It's a little different if you're 60 years old, but if you're 19, it's more likely you know a Muslim than you know an Episcopalian. And so I want you to, again, think back to the snapshots of, of religiously diverse America. And I want you to think just how common it is that, that you are going to be alongside a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Sikh or a Baha'i or a secular humanist in civic and professional life and ask you the question, what is it that you would want to know about their tradition in order to be a good doctor, a good professional in disaster relief, a good coach, a good teacher? What is it that you think you want to know to consider yourself an educated person to be part of civic and professional life alongside people from different religions in this, the most religiously diverse nation in human history? Couple of final charts. So my organization, Interfaith Youth Corps, we work largely in American higher education and we just completed what is probably the most ambitious survey uh, of religious diversity in higher education that's ever been done. 120 campuses, uh, over 20,000 students, three administrations. Uh, uh, we asked students a whole set of questions about religious, religious diversity and diversity in politics more broadly. And here's one of our most striking findings, that 70% of students say that bridging religious divides is really important. Imagine that if you were part of this survey, you might have said the same thing. I think that, you know, the polarization uh, between religious communities is a problem. It's a problem for America. It's a problem for the world. It's a problem for my religion. My religion preaches uh, cooperation uh, and, and, and a type of unity. So 70% of you say that that's important to bridge religious divides but not that many people actually take part in a program that would help you develop the skills and the knowledge to do that, which of course my speaking at BYU is, is in part helped to address. So, so look at these numbers, only 26% take a course that deals with religious diversity, fewer than 15% participate in an interfaith dialogue or an interfaith uh, uh, diversity training or an interfaith action. So there's a big gap between the ideal here, the ethic of bridging religious divides and the actual skills and knowledge to do it. That's a problem. I actually think for, uh, for a university like Brigham Young, for a community like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this is a wonderful opportunity. What if your university, your religious community said, you know, we are going to not just uh, a talk about the ideal, we are going to achieve the ideal. We are going to become the ideal. Our students, our community is not only going to be committed to mission, totally legitimate 
conviction as you do it offered with generosity and grace. We're also going to be committed to appreciation, to cooperation, to interfaith leadership. We are going to make sure that we have the ability to bridge religious divides. It's one of the most important problems in the world today. Next chart. So we discovered that American higher education does a pretty good job of, of talking about various forms of diversity. So you look at the blue bars there. Uh, uh, colleges do a good job by and large of engaging people uh, in conversations about race and ethnicity, about nationality, about various forms of gender and sexuality, uh, um, about people from different politics. Over 50% of college students say that those issues are are uh, addressed, that there's dedicated time to learning about those things, over 60%, frankly. But I want you to look at the orange there. Fewer than 50% of college students say they spend any time dedicated to religious diversity at all. And, and frankly, my eye goes straight to the last bar of this chart. Uh, the bar that represents Latter-day Saints. And I think to myself just how deeply my life has been enriched by my knowledge of the Latter-day Saints tradition, uh, by my friendships with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of, of Latter-day Saints. Uh, um, the fact that I know about the LDS commitment to family, the fact that I know about the LDS commitment to community, the fact that when two of my LDS friends are talking and they mention the term ward, I know what they are talking about. I know what they are talking about. I think that the people who do not receive some appreciative knowledge of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, of your ethics, of your history, of the movement West, right, from the Burned Oak District in New York State through Nauvoo all the way into Utah and what it meant, what that journey meant, I think that they're missing something. I think that they lack something in their education. And everywhere I go, whether it's Notre Dame or Harvard or Stanford, I point that out. I say that it is part of being an educated person to have an appreciative knowledge, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Just as I say to you, it is part of being an educated person for members in good standing of the community that is Brigham Young University to have an appreciative knowledge of people from other religions, what inspires them to do things that we all admire, to have an understanding of the history of interfaith cooperation and the skills and the vision and the commitment and knowledge base to bridge religious divides. Because, and I'll show my last slide here. This is, um, this is uh, images of, of America, of an American ideal, right? And, and the faded one there is a Norman Rockwell image of religious diversity. And the one alongside it is, is a bit of a more colorful image. But part of what I want to point out is it has long been an ideal of the United States to be a religiously diverse democracy. All the world is in America, John Locke, the great philosopher, would say. And this is the first nation to believe that you could have people who spoke different languages, who uh, prayed to God in different ways, including not at all, who came from the four corners of the earth to this patch of land and built out of it a nation, 
aspiring to ideals, even though there have been mistakes and even sins along the way in violation of the ideals of freedom, of cooperation, of pluralism, of dignity for all, we can still achieve that. We can still achieve that. And I think you, students and faculty and staff and administrators at Brigham Young University can be in the front of that movement. Thank you so much for having me. Jazakallah, may God give you goodness. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.